Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Reagan Canope. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. So for all these reasons why I think it could have been a good year for Republicans, they made no progress at all. Oregon doesn't exist on an island. You can't win statewide in Oregon if you get thumped in Multnomah County and get increasingly thumped in Washington County. Not only can you not win statewide, but you, you, they're getting, Republicans are getting skunked in Washington County in the legislature. I mean, I certainly thought it was possible that Portland Democrats would gravitate towards Johnson or to Drazen. But you can't separate how people mm. think about Democrats, but in this case, Republicans, nationally. All right, folks. Today, we are excited to have friend of the pod, John Horvick. John is one of the top pollsters in the state of Oregon, We've had him on the podcast before. You should listen to that episode if you haven't, where we kind of talk about the mechanics of polling, how it works, how it doesn't work, etc. Today, though, we invited John specifically on because we wanted an expert on data to talk through the results of the election and help us interpret what it meant, what voters were trying to say, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the basic outline of the show is we talk about why the red wave didn't show up in Oregon, what some of the factors were, was the expectation the right one or the wrong one, how national factors impacted the election key takeaways. And then we went basically governor's race, congressional races, legislative races, Portland races, et cetera, trying to parse through some of the numbers and uh, what voters said. Reagan, what did you think? Anything you want to pull out for folks to listen for? Well, first, as you pointed out, follow at Horvick on Twitter. He's got so much data that he's sharing all the time in and outside of elections, just about um, important election details. And I think that kind of data background and his like really strong background in that really helps inform like when I, I brought some takes to him and he kind of basically was like, here's the data that either does or doesn't support that. And so it's really helpful because I think especially in politics, you get a lot of these quote unquote like media narratives, whether they're driven by partisan or nonpartisan media that are sometimes wrong and really easy to debunk with like basic data. And so I think John does a really good job helping us parse that data and help us kind of understand a little bit more about the election. Totally. Yeah, I think that the way to think about this episode is if you're still trying to figure out how to interpret what just happened, what it means, implications for the future, that's what we're trying to wrestle with in this podcast. And we hope it's a helpful conversation for you. Any closing thoughts, Reagan? No, just in the, I ever hope everyone enjoys the episode. All right. Here's uh, the interview with John Horvick. All right, John Horvick, friend of the pod, welcome back. Yeah, thanks so much. Glad to be here. So obviously there's a ton to talk about. We want to kind of use this episode as a debrief of the election and potentially an explainer of like what mm -hmm. we do know about what's behind some of these results. So I think like we'll talk we'll talk broadly and about specifics throughout the next 45 minutes or so. But I think the headline to me was the red wave did not hit Oregon, despite predictions. Republicans have some things that they can mm -hmm. point to as successes, but Democrats sort of kept the, the big ticket items. They kept um, yep. majorities in both chambers. They kept the governor's office. They won two of the three competitive congressional races. Mm -hmm. What's your takeaway about the sort of like red wave not materializing in 2020? What do you think is the, the best explanation for that phenomenon not occurring? Well, somehow just the idea of a quote unquote red wave, you know, has a lot of assumptions baked into it, sort of how people are reading, you know, polling or whatever else, the history into this election. So 
why did it not happen is sort of dependent on the idea that it was supposed to happen. And maybe mm. that assumption was just wrong. Yeah, we'll talk probably lots of different numbers in this hour we have together. But the thing that I keep coming back to in my own head is looking at, this is the governor's numbers, looking at just the margins in the metropolitan area, in the metro area, and comparing that to 2018. In 2018, you know, you have Trump on, basically Trump is on the ballot. You know, it's people, Democrats, liberals in Oregon wanted to vote against Trump. You know, the key issues in the election were things like education and health care. And it was the out party typically does well in midterm elections and the Demo Republicans controlled D.C. And so this year you have, you know, Dem Democrats in control of D.C. You have a very unpopular Democratic governor in Oregon and an issue set that's things that are neutral or to favor Republicans, favoring Republicans, particularly on crime. I think homelessness is a bit complicated, but, you know, economic concerns tend to favor Republicans, at least when you ask voters who you trust more on them. And Portland was so mad about Portland, right? So it wasn't it wasn't like Portlanders were glad about the direction of their community or the state, and therefore it should, like on paper, uh, hold up Democrat votes in the metro area. You might think that, I mean, I certainly thought it was possible that, that Portland Democrats, not in great numbers, but some numbers, would gravitate towards Johnson or to Drazen. But in 2018, Kate Brown won Multnomah County by 52 points. I think as of this morning, Tina Kotek is winning Multnomah County by 53 points. Wow. Kate Brown won Washington County by 16 points in 2018. Tina Kotek is winning Washington County by 19 points in 2022. That's the third of the electorate. And then in Clackamas County, Kate Brown won by four points. And Christine Drazen right now, I think, is winning by about five. So for all these reasons why I think it could have been a good year for Republicans, they made no progress at all and backslid <laughs> further in Washington County, where, you know, 43% of the electorate said. And you just wow. can't win. You can't win statewide in Oregon if you get thumped like you're going to get thumped in, in Multnomah County and get increasingly thumped in Washington County. Not only can you not win statewide, but you, you, they're getting, Republicans are getting skunked in Washington County in the legislature. And then, then the question is, I think, was why? You know, why yeah. couldn't Christine Drazen make any progress in the metro area? And like, you know, let's let's talk about that too. But sort of like, why did the election outcome? Why did we get this result? I mean, I think we got this result because there was no progress made at all in the metro area in in a cycle and in a political environment where it sure looked like it should have been possible. So you've asked the question for me, but why? Why is it? Is this Trump phenomenon? Is this national kind of like polarization behavior that we're seeing? My short answer is yes, that Oregon doesn't exist on an island. And I think probably some of my own political analysis talked about it as though it did. But you can't separate how people mm. think about Democrats, but in this case, Republicans, apart from how they think about Republicans nationally. You know, Trump started making lots of noise again this summer and into the, mm -hmm. into the fall. And, you know, of course, there's the Dobbs decision. That motivated some Democrats. There is, you know, January 6th and, you know, the commission hearings or the congressional hearings this summer that reminded people how maybe they felt about, you know, democracy and elections issues. But also, anytime you turned on the news and you were paying attention to anything related to politics, you'd see pretty far out, not qualified candidates saying <laughs> ridiculous things. I mean, you got Herschel Walker making a lot of news. You have... Mastriano in Pennsylvania, you, I mean, Kari Lake, yeah, Lake. And so it's so like Christine Drazen wasn't any of those people. I mean, mm -hmm. she, she like literally wasn't 
any of those people, but she also like didn't talk that way. She didn't present that way. She didn't run a campaign that way. But I, for me, it just really solidified how difficult it is to separate for Oregon Republicans to separate themselves from the national party or the national sort of, if it's, I'm not even sure if it's the party, the, the national characters. And you end up with basically the same map and same margins as you did four years ago. Now I'll say that Republican areas were more Republican. So the mm -hmm. redder areas got redder and the, and the blue areas stayed, stayed as blue or got bluer. So if you look at what a three and a half point margin um, between Kotech and Drazen right now. Mm -hmm. And so even though like the, the top line number is really narrow, if you look at the county results, the, you can't see my hands on a podcast, but my hands are going further apart. You know, the, the red areas are becoming redder and the blue areas are becoming bluer. And so tightly contested state, but it's because every sort of portion of the state's polarized, you know, Democrat or Republican. Okay. The thing I didn't mention was Betsy Johnson. And the other sort of thing is just the collapse of Betsy Johnson. And, and I think how at the end, rather irrelevant her candidacy ended up being to the to the actual outcome. I mean, she's a she ran a relevant campaign, and it's important to talk about. It and there's interesting things, lessons there, but but I don't think she impacted. She was not Al Mobley in whatever that was, whatever year it was. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so I think that the other thing too is on the third party front, voters are a little bit more astute about the winability of those. They've mm -hmm. seen them before. They understand that. So like. And I don't mean this to say that I think that like necessarily either party had a hard time keeping their base. They clearly didn't. But like for those folks on the fringes, I think more of them are astute to the point that as they got to the end, Johnson mm -hmm. didn't have a chance. So whether yep. they were willing to vote for her, they didn't. A lot of them, I think. And that's the result of that like 10 to 20 point collapse that she saw from, you know, maybe high of 25 ish mm -hmm. to eight. If she, got, if, she, if she could have gotten from 25 to 30, like I, right, that's and that never happened. Amazing. But if that did happen, that changes the whole dynamic. But once you go from yeah. 25 to 20 to 15, then people look at that and say, well, you know, why am I, why am I voting for somebody who can't win? Yep. Hmm. And I think the other thing too, that might have had play and John, you can kind of respond to that before I ask our next question is it's going to be basically unknowable when you, cause everyone's going to break down the precinct data and see who mm -hmm. did where and where were the gains made for Republicans, where the losses, as you're pointing out. And, you know, the parties will kind of use that to target all the races that they handle in the next cycle. I kind of think that this data set is going to be a lot less useful just because you don't it's a secret ballot. So you there's no way to know which Republicans that turned out voted for Johnson. You can take an, a guess. But like the precinct data is going to tell us nothing except for here's 10 to 8, 8 to 10 percent of people in each precinct that voted for Betsy. And so yeah. it's really going to be hard to know were they going to vote for Drazen if there was only a two-person race. Did they want to not Kate Brown, not Tina Kotick candidate, or were they just in for Johnson and would snap back to their parties in a year where there's only two candidates? I mean, yeah, we'll we'll never know for sure. People argue about it forever. That I don't have, I haven't looked at precinct sort of level numbers yet, but just take county level numbers. This may be slightly different as people watch this because as re results are still being reported this week. But last I looked, Johnson was getting 10% of the vote in counties that Drazen won. 8% of the vote in counties that Kotech won, which would at least suggest at that level that Drazen did, or excuse me, that Johnson, I quote unquote, took more voters from Drazen. Although I have no idea if those are Democrats in rural counties who voted for Johnson. Like that's, that's, the, uh, that's right. the sort of analysis. It's really just, hard to tell. Well, and remember tell. that the Kotech counties are going to be, are generally higher population counties. They are. There's more, so. there's more raw vote 
the more yeah. raw votes for Johnson in Drazen counties than there are raw votes for Johnson in Kotek County. So it's both relative and, and absolute. But still, I don't know. I don't know who those voters are. Exactly. Yeah. Do we have any, Bragan, and you'll ask the next question, but do we have any like exit polls in Oregon or anything that can, there's nothing that, that I'm aware of. And I was talking with somebody about this. It was, oh, it was in prep for my interview. I'm going on OPB on Monday. Think out loud, I think. And um, they asked me about that. They said, oh, could somebody do a survey? And it's like, yeah, but there's a lot of data to suggest that people are pretty bad at remembering who they voted for. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you're not a true partisan. So it's like pretty useless data to go get. That's why nobody does it. Like, exit polls are as close as you're going to get. And even then, the data is like everyone is arguing about how accurate it oh, is or isn't. And it seemed like some of the CNN exit polls worked were about right, actually this year but it's that's rarely ever true it seems like so mm -hmm. okay so you talked a little bit about it but maybe you can dive in are there specific points of data or specific things that you are looking at to say this is how we know or this is how we can infer that national factors like trump dobbs inflation biden affected how people voted or is are, are you kind of doing some back of the napkin guesswork at, at this point i mean how how confident are you in in some of those discussions or is it just preliminary? I think, you know, because it... I'm modestly confident, but mm -hmm. mine, my sort of interpretation is, is perhaps more holistic, which is if we look at 2018 compared to 2022, now you, have, you take the Johnson factor. But if you just look at the DRs, the two party vote, and then you sort of look at, you know, where where the candidates got their support. It's so similar, like you know, it's the same seven counties, kind of the margins are similar directionally. Everything looks the same. But the issue set was so different. And the issue set, again, I mean, I, maybe my interpretation is wrong, but I think the issue set is more favorable to Republicans than it was in 2018. And the fact that there was no, essentially no change, leads me to the conclusion that there's some outside factor, some factor outside of Oregon that's determining that. And we just, we, we see so frequently nationalization of state politics, nationalization of local politics, much less ticket splitting than they used to be historically. All that to me points to, for a constellation of reasons, I think it goes beyond Dobbs, but Dobbs is part of that. But you know, just Democrats ultimately couldn't stomach voting for a Republican, nor could Republicans stomach voting for a Democrat. But I think we were looking for more of the former in this cycle. You know, that ultimately they just they came back home to where they are comfortable. Or maybe say another way, you know, they they resisted what they feel like they need to resist. Mm -hmm. So th that begs some potentially uncomfortable questions about our democracy. And the way that I have framed the question is like, what lessons should candidates take from these results? But I'll ask it maybe in a different way as an incoming Democratic member of the mm -hmm. legislature, but also for someone like Tina Kotek, the governor-elect. There's one way to look at these results that says, you know, despite really challenging election cycle, voters hey. said, keep going, keep doing what you're doing, because I'm sending you back with basically the same yeah. exact map as before. That's not my takeaway from these results. I think if that was true, we would see a more substantial Democratic wins across the board. I think like there's one school of thought that I tend to be sympathetic with, which is like voters didn't really see a viable alternative, particularly with like things like abortion that like in places like Multnomah and Washington County, they didn't feel like there was a real choice. But what do you, what do you take away? Like what should a newly electeds be thinking about what voters were, quote, saying with these results? I'll give you my worry first, and then I'll sure. try to I'll try to circle around to something maybe more hopeful. My worry, and this I, this is going to sound like a partisan comment, and it's not intended to be, 
But my worry is, is that Democrats are going to look at these results and say, hey, we can do we, we can do whatever the hell we want. We can do whatever we want. We can have unpopular governor. We can have major challenges that from a political leadership perspective, only we can be responsible for. It wasn't the Republicans that were in charge that sort of led us to these places. Hey, and we keep large majorities in the legislation and we win the governor. We, we just we can we got it. I hope that's not the lesson. I worry that that might be a lesson if it's not said out loud. I'm will. I, yeah, I was going to say to that point, I'm not hearing anyone talk like mm-hmm. that. Even Governor like Kotex comments, yeah. I think, have been really conciliatory. And mm-hmm. but yeah, I agree. My hope is that you know we get through an election and everything feels left and right and candidate A versus candidate B. But the challenges that we had, and, and Portland certainly was a big part of this campaign, both like as a place and as an idea. But so many of the challenges that exist in the metro area really are challenges that exist throughout the state. I mean, homelessness may be more visibly in certain ways in the metro area and in Portland, but I mean, you, you travel any part of the state. I was just in, in Roseburg the other day. There's lots of folks sleeping in, on the street and uh, mm-hmm. in shop uh, stoop. And you travel along the coast and certainly every time I do focus groups out there, people will talk about, you know, just the terrible cost of living and how housing affordability out there. Eastern Oregon rents are really high. I mean, these these problems cut across the state. And so I guess I'm hopeful that some of these issues that voters said are really clearly are the most important thing to us are not necessarily seen as somebody else's problem, but shared problems and, and work towards common solutions. I mean, I would hope legislators look at these election results and say, our state is on the verge of breaking. You have, I mean, I know Lake County is small, but Lake County won for, I mean, fine that they voted for Christian Drazen by 72 points. But when Lake County is going from one candidate by 72 points and Multnomah County is going for another candidate by 53, we got to solve these problems together. So I hope, I hope there's a clear-eyed look at the position we've put ourselves in, in a willingness to work together. All that said, I think the divides that we see, say, in Lake County and Multnomah County, you know, there, there's policy differences, of course, but you know, so much of it's cultural. And that's the hard part, like to imagine what do politicians do? Mm-hmm. What does a governor do in, in a small state within a large country to bridge those cultural divisions? And I'm, I don't have any like advice around that other than just say, like, <laughs> let's look at that squarely and be clear that's something that we need to work towards addressing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my worry, my worry is that I worry the Democratic legislators will look at these numbers and say, "Hey, look, we're just not at risk." I thought about kicking Reagan off the show and just making it <laughs> me, but I figured <laughs> the voters have spoken. But no, no, I'm kidding. John, so my question is, Rufus, calm down. This is my dog here, but he wants some attention. Um, so my question is, and this is a question because one of the things that's really easy to do is spin election results in your favor. So I can Mm -hmm. hit the Republican talking points about what we did well and all this stuff. And Ben can do the same thing. Mm -hmm. But for you, for being more of an outside observer, I want to kind of posit to you one of the things that we've been discussing internally as Republicans and see if you kind of think that that's true or, or has some merit anyway. So one of the things that's going around is we have only one Democrat now that represents a seat on the coast, David Gomberg, mm-hmm. right? Weber flipped the Senate seat. Mm-hmm. Dick Anderson flipped the Senate seat. Oh, mm-hmm. the, that was held by Democrats two years ago. Mm-hmm. The coast seems to be pretty red at this point. You have to be it's a pretty good. moderate Dem. Central Oregon flipped. So now there's only one Republican representing the legislature there. Hillsborough kind of tossed all their Republicans circa 2010 through 2016, mm-hmm. Right. And so you've kind of see these different transformation of these region lane counties, adding a few more Republicans. You're seeing transformations of these regions. And 
the best way that I can approximate it, we had a Republican win a Woodburn seat for the first time in a while. The best way I can approximate it, maybe there's different verbiage, is more of the kind of, I don't know what's called, blue collar versus white collar, I guess mm-hmm. is the best definitions I have, where it seems like those kind of like, those trends that kind of started in 2016 with Trump have accelerated mm-hmm. a little bit or have continued in Oregon. But I'm curious kind of your your view mm-hmm. on that, because I don't I don't necessarily feel like Democrats, I'm not saying Democrats don't represent blue collar workers oh, no. or, Indians right, or anything right. like yeah. that, but it seems like these areas that have these kind of different cultural yeah. backgrounds are changing who they're having represent them in the legislature. Fewer Republicans from Hillsborough, Multnomah, and more Republicans from the coast and some yeah. of these other areas. I don't have the numbers in front of me, and the numbers I have are based upon the old legislative districts, not the new districts, but I assume yeah. that the stories can basically be the same. And you didn't use the word education, but like I think mm, education is point. part of is, is part of underlying some of these these factors. And basically, Democrat well, Democrats hold every single I did in the last in the last legislature. So I'm not sure exactly this plays out in the next one, but for the purpose of this conversation, held every single legislative seat with above average college education. And basically they hold more or less the top two thirds or so, or or I guess 60% or so of the of the districts that have the highest levels of education. And Republicans basically do well with districts that have lower levels of education. There's, you know, the Woodburn seat was an outlier. It had the lowest level of college education of the 60 legislative seats and it was held by a, a Democrat. So that there's, and that's obviously very diverse or a district as well. So there's there's factors there. But that mirrors the national trend, which is you have lower educated, lower educated, you know, particularly white voters who have moved to the Republican and, and higher educated, college educated voters moving Democrat. These are Democrat or educated voters and less educated voters, like they have different, I mean, these you can exaggerate the things, but have different value sets, certainly different policy priorities. Different issues are more salient to them. And and just you having different conversations with your neighbors. And so one of the, as well as geographic divides, one of the other divides that's happened in this, in this state and beyond Oregon is this education divide. And if you are a Democratic legislator in Washington County and 70% of your constituents have a college degree, that's a whole different set of issues and concerns than a you know, Republican in Eastern Oregon where, I don't know, 18, 19% of your constituents have a college degree. It's just Anyway, I'm not even so maybe getting off track, not answering your question, right? No, but that's but that's one no, of the no, things I think, that I keep I keep thinking about and is <clears throat> is driving our politics. That makes that makes sense to me. And well, and I think it's also fair. The coast you could describe as more rural, and you could describe Bend as increasingly urban, right? Increasingly, increasingly higher educated as you know retirees of California. I mean, kind of picking on Bend, but you know California <laughs> outsiders kind of move in. But the folks <laughs> who are moving in are, you know, a lot of them are higher educated, more wealthy individuals who can afford the housing there and um, making it making it blue. Before we transition to like specific races, we've got like a bunch of specific races. John, I'm curious if there's any other like larger trends or key takeaways that you think we should be aware of or talking about when we think about the 2022 cycle? I don't know. There's some interesting things that I think, well, one, I kind of, I kind of picked on the Democrats for like taking the lesson for this thing, doing anything they want. I guess I'd say maybe to pick on Republicans too. Man, you got to do something. And I say you, so (laughs) maybe looking at Reagan, you got to do something to bring down those margins in Multnomah County. I mean, I mean, you, you can't keep running this playbook over and over again where you have these cultural fights so that Democrats just don't want to be like, are just going to want to punch you in the face when you hear them. Like this is, and also, I don't know how it's possible, but it, from an Oregon perspective, but I, I think, I think about California as well with this is 
you have these West Coast states that Republicans are just are just going to be in the wilderness until the, the fever breaks nationally. The Republican Party just like it, it's remarkable to me that the California Republicans is such a huge state. Are just like it's it's just gone. And it's gone yeah. because it's gone because of Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene and like a whole bunch of other stuff. But it's just like it's it's totally out of reach. Well, um, and I think when I was at chamber, Brian Clem's point, uh, what he was making was basically the extremes of the party got rebuked. You know, they that, you know, Jamie McLeod Skinner was punished because Democrats primary Kurt Schrader. And he gave another Republican example that Joe uh, Kent, Joe uh, Kent and Joe Vancouver. Kent, that's right. Washington. Washington. Yeah. Joe Kent primary and beat Herrera Butler and that voters basically punished him for that. And it was yeah. kind of it's pretty simple. It wasn't like, oh, they were like closely looking at each different opposing candidates. Philosophies was just like, why did no. you do Please don't. Yeah. And so I think and when Republicans did hold majorities, we had to hold a bunch of seats in Multnomah with moderate Republicans. Right. Mm -hmm. We had a Lane County with moderate Republicans. Right. So I think your your point is well taken and something that the party is going to examine. One of the challenges being that a lot of the folks that are obviously working in the background on these things on both sides increasingly don't tolerate those kinds of like maverick style candidates. Right. Mm -hmm. Unions aren't going to back candidates that I don't know what vote to reform PERS, right? That was one of their their big things that they looked to make sure Democrats, you know, didn't do a, a bunch of, right? Or or at least they were pretty vocal when PERS reforms, some of the smaller PERS reforms went through recently. Same thing with the Republicans if you're not right on, you know, guns or some of those other key issues. So it, it is a challenge. But I do think looking at this too, you kind of, I, I noticed, so I don't think Trump endorsed in any single race except for maybe re-election endorsement mm-hmm. for Cliff Benz. Had Trump played in Oregon, I think things would have gone way more poorly for Republicans. Absolutely, absolutely. Than they absolutely. did because, like, we picked up a Senate seat net. We netted one Senate seat. We netted three House seats. Like, there's no other blue state that was targeted by Republicans where that happened. And there's only a handful where they made pickup. New York and Hawaii are the only ones where Republicans made any gains whatsoever, and they're still pretty irrelevant in those states. Like in Oregon, we're we're more relevant than we are than Republicans are in those states. Yeah. I think so. the Hawaii Senate Republicans went from one senator to two senators. No, no, two to three. And they have 30. So yeah. A 50, a 50% yeah it's a pretty big increase. difference. A massive yeah. growth in the caucus. <laughs> they grew by like 33%. Um so Reagan, I'll just take us to governor's race yeah, next. Yeah. And uh, we talked about this some already, but John, like I know you, you've, as we said it before, we'll say it again. Best Oregon politics Twitter account is at Horvick, um, but you, you've done quite a few like graphics and historical examination of past governors' races. There's a lot of anticipation that this was going to be a fundamentally different governors race than mm-hmm. governors races in recent history, mm-hmm. both in terms of money being spent. We've got Betsy Johnson in the race. Democrats are in trouble. To what extent? Does this align perfectly with the last, say, four or five governor's races? And to what extent does this were the outcomes different than what you might have expected? Well, we tend to be, I mean, elections are binary outcomes, and maybe binary analysis isn't the best, despite that. But to kind of pick up on Reagan's thread, you know, Republicans, if their prior going to the election is that they can tie the Senate or maybe win it and they can win the governor's race, then this is a disappointing election. I mean, well, and that's I true. How, I, I will say. How, Knowing the results that we know now and knowing that there was very little red wave, if none at all, that wouldn't have been our prior going in. Like if we were saying, here's your national environment, we'd be like, oh, man, we're really screwed. So like, yes, it's true. We were disappointed by this result because we definitely thought we could win the Senate. But but if you if if you thought, hey, this is kind of if your mindset is, man, Oregon's going to do Oregon, it's going to be super blue, but we're going to be competitive in the governor's race. We're going to gain 
a congressional district and we're going to claw back some of the seats in the legislature, you might say, hey, you know, that's a pretty good and, and Oregon will be relatively red compared to the rest of the country. You, you, you probably think that's a pretty, pretty good outcome. Yeah. I think I, I mean I, I don't sit in those seats, but I I, I suspect. No, that's maybe true. That's, that's the exact discussion I'm having with everyone on my side of the aisles. Like, if we had thought different things were going to happen nationally, we would be ecstatic. But we're all sad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Kate Brown I think went by six points in 2018, and this is going to be a three and a half point race. And Kits Hopper or Dudley came within a point and a half of beating Kits Hopper in 2010. So this <laughs> sort of kind of falls in between that that space. In 2010, frankly, it's probably just more elasticity in the electorate than there is in 2022. And so mm. that political environment was probably as difficult for Democrats. There's some ways maybe it was more difficult. In some ways it was less. It was incumbent, I mean, more or less an incumbent that was running on the Democratic side. John, the elasticity comment mean, basically means like the capacity for Democrats to vote for uh, Republican. Republicans. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That there were more, maybe more swing voters, maybe another way to say it, than there is now. Another factor... I mean, turnout is not great. I mean, it's not terrible, but there are a lot of left votes left out there on mm. both the Democratic and Republican side. And maybe maybe that's just driven by the fact that Trump's not a player like he was in 2018, and that's what's motivated voters so much the last you know six years or so. How much of that, though, is people looking at the percentages and not realizing that like motor voter has added like a couple hundred thousand people to the rolls? And so it's going to drop our turnout percentages like. Well, 2018 motor voter was had been in place for two years at that point. So even 2018, 2022 are relatively good apples to apples comparisons. But turnout, but, turnout among eligible voters is is down, too. So it's not just okay. it's not just registered yeah, that's, voters. That's fair. So anyway, voters weren't maybe as motivated and that's. That's interesting, considering that it really was. I mean, all the signals were, and it ended up being a competitive gubernatorial election, as well as you had these competitive congressional district races and open seats, so really consequential. And so that's, I'm not sure if disappointing, but like, if you want to think about like, what are the, what, what lessons to take from this, you know, part of that sort of equation is thinking about just like who turned out to vote. And, you know, they're, some folks weren't as motivated as they had been in the past. Uh, and what would drive them in the future if you want to if you want to get that three and a half point margin, you know, down down further or, you know, to flip it. I've got um, a quick question on a macro item before we go to the next race. About governor's race? Yeah. Okay, go for it. Because I got one on um, governor's race. So one of the big discussions that I think will happen in the 23 session, because Tina Kotek and Kate Brown had both committed to some campaign finance reform stuff and there was some progress made but there was no actual limits in place when brown was governor right and so i think now they're kind of more serious conversations about limits my question is you know we, republicans could look at the race and say oh you know we raised more money than ever on the legislative side and that kept us competitive or we could say well tina kotek ended up outspending drazen by five million dollars or kotek can talk about all the money that phil knight's throwing into the system one of my takeaways from this election, and you can tell me if you disagree, is that you can spend as much money as you want. It doesn't change the voters. You're not going to buy elections. It's not possible to buy elections. Certainly, it's necessary to get your message out there, but it's really hard to buy elections in deep red states for Democrats and in blue states for Republicans. It just doesn't seem like it's as big of a factor as everyone says it is or people complain it is sometimes, it feels like. You know, my interpretation is this Oregon election got nationalized, like elections tend to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know how you, what, what, so what dollars you can spend to change those dynamics in a place like Oregon. 
My, I mean, I, I, in terms of the individual legislative races, like the state legislative races, I just don't have honestly good enough insight to how the dollars were spent and maybe impactful for the gubernatorial elections and for the congressional elections. It's like, I don't know, I, sitting from the outside, it seems like everybody had plenty of money to get their measures across and do their voter outreach that they needed to do. And if one had more than the other, well, I don't know, it didn't make much difference because each were, everybody was well-financed enough to get what they did. Yeah, I think, I think that's my general point is it feels like everybody in the competitive elections hit to get, you know, the viability stage. And then after that, it's like, sure, throw $10 million on, but it's probably not going to change the outcome that much. My, my one I, push. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that my one sort of campaign finance sort of thought is it's not a state issue. It's a, it's a local Multnomah County issue. And uh, but while we're just there talking about dollars, it's, you know, Multnomah, I, and I couldn't speak chapter and verse about how the limits work in Multnomah County, but. You know, because they're confusing. Well, they're confusing, <laughs> but they're also they're also strict. Like, there's just not much, yeah. much money, and you know that Multnomah County, largest county in the state, dealing with the most important issue that voters are concerned about: homelessness and associated issues with you know crime and everything, the kind of quality of life stuff. And the two candidates had a nickel to spend. Like it's, I don't know how much dollars is appropriate for those races. I, you know, I'm not. There's smarter policy people on me on how to manage campaign financing, but. It sh they should have be able to raise enough money at least to be able to communicate to voters about their campaigns and their issues and in what matters and 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 that race was so under resourced for its importance that I really do hope Multnomah County voters revisit how that worked because I just and then of course that money that space will be filled by, by outside party. money by third party yeah. of course it is of course it is yeah we need candidates I don't know I don't I'm not sure what the exact policy solution is but. Candidates need to be well resourced as well. I mean, we can have too yeah. much money, but we can have too little. And I think yeah. that's the case in Multnomah County. So, real my one quick pushback, Reagan, on the campaign finance saturation question. I agree. Governor's race, everybody had plenty of money to say their message. And Betsy Johnson proved that money does not buy votes. Um, <laughs> although, you know, Mike Bloomberg and others have proved that in the past. Um, <laughs> I think top tier targeted legislative races, that was true. Like Kenimer and Meek had plenty of money. I think Patterson and Moore Green had plenty yep. of money. But when you get to the fringes of like what turned out to be hyper competitive legislative races, there were massive imbalances in like there's an Oregon Coast thing, uh, Oregon Coast seat I'm thinking of. There's a Central Oregon seat I'm thinking of that went different ways, right, where one person had more money in one, one person had less money that won. But those are races where I have been wondering what would the outcome have looked like if there was closer to parity in campaign spending? Because I do yeah. think le legislative races are so much further under the radar. Like congressional races, I agree. We're about to talk about CD4, 5, and 6. They both had plenty of money. I think, you know, Mike Erickson probably spent a little bit more of his own money than Salinas did. But like, we heard from both of them as a constituent, mm -hmm. I can tell you. <laughs> so anyway, I'll, I'll actually take us to CD4 now. Aside from, I don't know if you all saw this, but on election night when OregonVotes.org released the initial results at like 8.05 or whatever. Oh, it was, I was, I, I, quickly, I was on TV and didn't realize that Lane County hadn't dropped. That's it. what I was saying. Oh, 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 oh my God, this is, this is close. Right? And, then, and, then, and then about 30 minutes later, Lane County dropped. It's, uh, no, this is boring. That's exactly what I was just about to talk about. Like that was the one race on my first click yeah. where I was like, shouting expletives at the election night party because I was like, I cannot, I literally could not believe that this had happened. Turns out it didn't happen. Val Hoyle yep. won by a very healthy, healthy margin, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about this or maybe this would be actually a good opportunity to have a polling conversation. Sure. Like since 2016, there've been mm -hmm. these 
you know, very large, significant conversations about is polling completely broken? It misled all of us. It lied to the American people. And now it seems like it that's the automatic reaction, like people at the end of election, are like, well, the polls just don't work. Seems like the polls kind of worked and yeah, like the kind polls of were good this cycle. Yeah. yeah. In 2016 and in 2020, like the morning after, I'd get these phone calls from people like, what the hell happened? You dumb <laughs> yeah. pollster. Nobody yeah. called me this year. It was like, yeah, oh, good. Yeah, they were good in 18. I don't know what lessons to take from. I mean, there, there's lessons to take from that. And we could have a whole conversation about polling. But but broadly speaking, the polling was pretty good this cycle. And even like, I don't know, I can be really defensive about this. And, and <laughs> no, no, go for it. But it, yes, 2016 had problems. And I, you know, we can talk about individual races in particular where they were way off. And in 2022, there's some races that were way off as well. And one of it, if you do a thousand polls, you're going to be able to find some that stink. I mean, that's like, congratulations. You found a stinker out there. The other is, is I don't know, 2020, let's take that. I think the national polls were off by, now, I know it's national. We have an electoral college, but just sit with me for a second. The national polls were off by a couple points, something like that. How many people voted in 2020? 130 something million, 160 million. I don't know what the number is, but, you know, a lot of people. We changed the election laws. It was during a pandemic. It was all sorts of things. And how much, like, how much better do you want it to be? <laughs> well, like, and John, I think one of the other things too that people, you got to explain to them first before they think about. If you're not someone who's deeply involved in politics or deeply involved in polling, so John, let me. I want to lay something out for you. In a hypothetical sure. race between Ben and Reagan, mm -hmm. Ben um, in a landslide. You're that totally true. Totally true, Ben. <laughs> You would crush me. So a poll that shows me winning by two points. Let's just say Ben barely beats me just because I want to save my dignity. Ben beats me 51-49. A poll showing me winning by two points is more accurate than a poll showing Ben winning by eight points because you're correct. Uh, you're closer to the accurate accuracy of the margin, but people want polls that pick the correct winners, which is much right. harder to do in close elections. Uh, that's, that, that's that's right. So like the math doesn't care that we decide arbitrarily that 50% is the marker for winning or right. losing. It's not arbitrary, but like from a math perspective, it is. And so sure. Yeah. I mean, the, you should look at the margin for accuracy, not just predicting the winner. Mm -hmm. Naturally, though, of course, a news consumer or just an average yeah. person wants to know the, what the outcome is going to be. So they're going to be more concerned yep. about the, you know, predicting the winner. But sure, from a, if you're going to judge polling and pollsters, yeah, the margin is a better thing to look at. The other thing is hard, and I, I don't fault anybody for this, but like you know, we did stuff for the Oregonian, you know, dropped about five weeks before the election, and you have I forget what the undecided voter was at that time, but 15, 20 percent, something like that. And those people really do go somewhere. Yeah, and attitudes really do change and i know it's like kind of the pollster sort of default is a snapshot in time but if voters didn't change like you know you two ben you wouldn't have ran a campaign and and, and reagan you wouldn't be working to help folks be successful and raise money <laughs> and put ads out there like you know these things do matter to voters and so you have to be you know, like when was the poll done what the margin is not just you know who predicts as a winner well so polls got cd4 correct Polls mm -hmm. got CD5 correct. Mm -hmm. Polls got CD6 correct. Mm -hmm. And the, I mean, like, so I guess we we actually probably don't have to spend a ton of time on the congressional races because, again, I don't, I wasn't surprised. Reagan, I doubt you were surprised. John, I think your polls probably said this was going to happen. But do you have any congressional race kind of reflections? The one reflection I'd have is not about the polls, but just kind of thinking forward. Once a reflection was a question. The reflection is, I would have anticipated Lori Chavez Dreamer would do better in Clackamas County. And that, that probably mm. is just a misreading of me of that electorate. And we're, I just, it was just a simple assumption. She's a 
former mayor from Clackamas County and that's her base and she would do better there. Marion County stands out to me in this election and that's a place where obviously mm. Lori Chavez Dreamer did really well and Christine Drazen did well. Mm. Joey Perkins is winning Marion County over Ron Wyden. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. But I think about four points. So if you don't look at the legislative lines, which have different voter compositions than Marion County as a whole, right? Marion County was pretty red this year, which was a surprise because Biden flipped it in yep. 20, right? Yep. Yeah. So Biden, it's, it's, wait, Joe Ray Perkins is winning in a Biden County. Yep. Yes. Yep. That's yep. a remarkable statistic. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, I'm not surprised that a Republican won the fifth district, but sort of the, where the votes came from. Surprise me, but maybe that just because I didn't have a close enough eye on that race. But well, and the one thing you have to look at is the parts of those counties that are in that map. Sure. So like she goes into Happy Valley, which is not super red part of Clackamas, but she doesn't have all of well, she might have all of Clackamas. The problem with the new maps is I'm not as familiar with the train, but like you pick up Bend, but she doesn't have all of Deschutes or at least not all the reds. Okay. I have to pull up a map because I'm saying stupid stuff. One one of my favorite things about that district is that there's six voters in Jefferson County. (laughs) They all voted for McLeod Skinner, I think, which is- They all voted for McLeod Skinner. It was a a sweep in Jefferson County. Well, doesn't she- I think she lives in Jefferson County. So that's just home field advantage right there. It could have been her. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Southern part of Deschutes, which includes a lot of red territory is not in that district, right? You've got all of Lynn County, which is a pretty red county, is in the district. So it's like the territory does make it a little bit strange, but you have to control for like what portions of those counties they have too. And I just think a lot of people aren't, including me, as I just showed, are not familiar enough with the maps as they are yet to like know those things. Right. The other other thing about Uh the fifth district that I'm paying attention to is going forward. And I don't live in the fifth district, so I wasn't getting all the advertising that other people did. But Lori Chavez Dreamer, kind of made a big deal about being supported early on by Lee Stefanik, pretty, well, very conservative, young Republican congresswoman who's now in leadership, I believe, mm-hmm. the first person in Congress to endorse Trump's uh, re-election campaign. And the reason I sort of want it to really is obviously a very competitive district that I don't think is, there's kind of deep red Trumpy parts of it, but as a district as a whole, it's pretty purple. You know, how she chooses to be a congresswoman, you know, is it more that the head down, do the work? Is it more talk to the media and, and be flashy? You know, does she follow the Stefanik route or does she follow, I don't know, more work women's like sort of constituency services sort of? And I just I don't know her well enough to know, but that's just one of the things I, well, I'm curious about. We should try to have her back on the podcast, but I will tell you, I texted Reagan a couple of times in the last two weeks because she's like, and maybe it's just her social media people, but she's her post post victory social media has been incredibly partisan. Like it's been like party, like it's 1994 talking about red wave. It's been like highlighting the fact that she is a Republican and now there's more Republicans from Oregon, which like, I actually think is like kind of the opposite of how Tina Kotek has been behaving, Mm -hmm. which is basically like, I'm a governor for all of Oregon. Mm -hmm. I'm going to bring people together. So it'll be interesting to see that. This is my last question. Actually, it's kind of related to this on congressional stuff. And then Reagan will transition us. What is your sense on how much a very subjective question of candidate quality mattered in this cycle? So, for example, Mike Erickson mm-hmm. had a lot of very specific negative attacks levied mm-hmm. against him. Alex Carlatos brought some baggage to the table yeah. as a candidate. 
Do you think having fresh candidates in CD4 and CD6 and CD5, obviously, will fundamentally change the potential of those races? Or like, does this elasticity partisanship dynamic basically kind of bake us into the kind of races we saw this time? I, I mean, I just don't know. I mean, I, I, the, the sixth district is probably the most interesting to me there. The, this is just my observation. It's just one guy's observation. I think that Jamie McLeod Skinner was a good candidate, but not a great fit for the district. I'm not so sure how good of a candidate Mike Erickson is. And a lot of it has to do with that personal history. Well, I mean, plus he's what lost now three congressional races is. Oh yeah. Four. Three congressional <laughs> plus at least one or two legislative races. So that's not a great track record. And Andrew Salinas is winning that right now, I don't know, 6,000 votes or something like that. I, you know, two points ish. That would make me nervous if, you know, if, if I'm her Democrats for two years from now that on paper, what was that? A plus Biden won oh, that district by 12? I, is that what yeah, it is? Something like that. Boy, is that right? right again? So I had a, yes, that's true. I had a <clears throat> slightly different take because I think one, Salinas will be harder to beat as an incumbent, certainly. Sure, for sure. But I think that voters who knew, I might be giving them a little bit more credit, but I, I'm going to go ahead and do it. It was a new district and voters were open to what are our options? They didn't have an incumbent. They didn't have a primary that took out their incumbent. None of that. It was just a new district. And so voters were just like, you know what? Let's just pick somebody new. And both Salinas and Erickson were new to new enough to them that they were just leaving it open. And there was things that they liked about Erickson. There's things that they liked about Salinas. And so it ended up being a close election. So like, I think that going forward, it might still be winnable for Republicans, especially in more Republican years where they're going to, you know, swing voters might trend a little bit more Republican if there's a, another midterm, more like 2010 or 2014, right? But on the whole, I think because it was a new district, I felt like it's just more competitive because of that. The one thing that stands out to me about that sixth district is just how far we are from 2020. I mean, Andrea Salinas is running how she's the daughter of a police officer and increased funding <laughs> for the state police and how Mike Erickson is soft on crime, you know, compared to where, <laughs> compared to where the Democratic caucus was in 2020, where we're having special sessions, like, I, boy, it's, it's, we've moved a long way. Reagan, do you want to, should we, we got six minutes left, so maybe we should go Portland. Yeah, let's do Portland, because I think if people want to talk about legislature, they probably will. But like the takeaways for me are like, it didn't change a ton, except for there's no super majorities, mm. you know, and then we already talked about kind of the regional changes in terms of the legislature. So Portland, I was texting some people that I've uh, gotten, I've like built relationships with on Twitter and stuff like that. So I don't really like know them person to person, mm. but they tell me they're from Portland. And we talk about, they're asking like, what are Republicans saying about this? And so I was like, what are your guys' predictions for Portland? And they're like, Renee's going to win because he's up big in the polls. But that charter change is in trouble because of all the people who are attacking it. And I was like, no, it's passing. Guaranteed. I just said no. And I, I can't prove this. So you can just uh, you can just say I'm Monday morning quarterbacking. But I told a couple people on Twitter, they'll know. It's totally passing. And the reason why is like every single headline about broken Portland government. And mm -hmm. so is that kind of your take is just like, I guess, what is your take on the results from Portland, especially with, Multnomah County Chair's race, Portland City, and then the charter change. So the kind of argument that I've made, I still think it's largely true, but it's my thinking about it has revised a bit since the election, is that Portland's elections charter and the city council race were just referendums on, on how people were feeling about the city. So mm -hmm. I'm mad about things, and here's my opportunity to, to vote for something different. And, yep. and therefore, Gonzalez beat 
Hardesty and Charter passed. And I think there's some truth to that. But if you look at where Hardesty, excuse me, where Gonzalez was successful, he was successful on the west side of Portland, you know, so the West Hills into the South Multnomah Village, you know, towards Washington County, that part of the city, which tends to be higher educated, it tends to be wider, it tends to be a bit higher income. And he did best east of 205, east 82nd, which is that lower income, to me. lower yeah. income, higher concentrations of folks of color, uh, less educated. Um, and that's the opposite of charter reform. So charter reform did best where Hardesty did best, which is sort of the inner east side of hmm. Portland. And so just the simple like voters were voting for change, I don't think fits that the differences in those maps, because otherwise I think they should look the same, basically. Yeah, different um, parts of Portland were upset about different things, I guess. Yeah. So I think for charter, basically, at the where I start now is people wanted to vote for change. And that gets you to some number 45, 50%, I don't know what. And then also, there were attributes of charter that were particularly attractive to more progressive voters that ran up those numbers to 58%. And mm -hmm. I, th I think those things, based upon the fact that those voters also were Hardesty supporters, were, you know, liking the idea that multi-member districts and single transferable vote will increase representation, increase diversity in council. I know opponents might say that's not true, but I think that that, yeah. that was a, a, an argument that was delivered and delivered effectively to the same types of voters who were attracted to Hardesty. So I think I think it's charter, it's both end. It's wanted to vote for something different and there were attributes about it that were they were attractive to get it even higher than that, that Gonzalez number. But that map for Portland is pretty consistent. It's the same map that Wheeler won with in the, in the mayoral election. He, you know, he won the west side of the city and he won east of 205. And I, I've said this a number of times and I'll say it again, for progressive-minded candidates and causes in Portland, the fact that the lower income, more diverse parts of the community are voting for the quote-unquote more conservative candidate repeatedly should really give you some pause and question, like, what is it that we're missing about serving those communities that are making them vote another direction? The implications of these results basically mean that Ted Wheeler, Dan Ryan, Mingus Maps, and now Renee Gonzalez will have like a functional governing majority. And actually, Carmen Rubio, probably on some issues, mm -hmm. like it's, it's a more aligned council now than it's been yeah. in, in recent memory. And they're yeah. all lamb ducks. And so the, the and I don't know the answer. To this. <laughs> yeah. So oh, the, yeah. thing that, the, the thing that I'm in my own head, I'm asking is, you know, do they YOLO this? Is this about <laughs> using the next two years, you know, to just do whatever you can? Uh, yeah, that's or, a great question. Or, or do they look at this and say, hey, we're all done in two years. It's a whole new form of government with new legislative, like a new legislative body and new mayor. And like, you know, should we be not doing big policy stuff because of that? And I, you know, I simply don't know. I assume I assume they're going to yell it. They're going to yell it. <laughs> that several of them want to be mayor and who will have an incentive to uh -huh. to do something big to get the voters' attention. But but that's a big question for me. Is just you know when you're all lame ducks, and not just lame ducks like you know someone else is going to replace you, but lame ducks like the government itself is a lame <laughs> duck. Yeah. Uh, like what do you? How do you use that time? That's very rare. I just wanted to say, and I didn't mean to like completely derail because I will bring it back. But so Renee and I did want to give. Hardesty some credit. She got almost 48% of the vote. So yeah, it wasn't way it wasn't the bloodbath that yeah. it looked like. It was gonna, it was basically 52-48, right? So it was still I would consider a close election. Sure. The other thing that I was gonna say about that is that East Multnomah region was very competitive at the legislative side. 
despite in some of these races, Democrats outspending Republicans, and in some case, Republicans out. There were some of these seats that were targeted, but not as many as ended up being close. Yeah, like Rick, the one seat I do kind of pay attention out there is Ricky Ruiz's seat. Ricky Ruiz's seat. Yep. I don't know. I don't know the number, but that's that was that was very narrow. With very them. narrow. Yeah. And, and and that one emerged. I'll just tell you inside the Republican circle without sharing too much. That one emerged late. That was a late emerging seat. Mm-hmm. There was that was not on our radar early on that I'm aware of. But once it emerged, we did start to try to do a little bit there. But by then, a lot of the plans had already been made. There wasn't significant resources to shift around. Like we did target the seat that Randy Lauer ran in. We did target the seat that M. Baker ran in. So like that region, I think, is is performing swinging like it used to be mm-hmm. in some of the sessions. And then it was dominated by Democrats since about 2012, because there was a bunch of Republican freshmen that got elected in the 2010 wave. They got swept right. out the next cycle. Mm-hmm. And so at least in this election, it came back and said, we want to be, we're going to be a competitive area again and surprise everybody and give everyone heartburn, which it did on both sides because we're all watching these results going, oh my gosh, what's happening? And I'm interested to see if that maintains course, if they snap back to that, you know, either pre-2010 or post-2012 status. John, we're at 3.02, so we're a little bit over time, but do you have any closing thoughts or any races, interesting results that caught your mind that we haven't covered yet? The one I th- it's not an individual race, but it's it's the set of local funding measures in Oregon that mm-hmm. had another cycle of success. So I, I think basically two-thirds of them passed. So this is your, your school bonds and your transportation levies and all this sort of stuff across the state. In my own analysis, like if you go back to two decades before COVID, Local funding measures would pass at about a 60% rate. Since COVID, they've been passing at a you know 65 to 70% rate. Wow. Um, and and the, for me, that wasn't what I would have for. It's not what I foresaw. Right. I would have thought you know during the pandemic when people are maybe feeling or were feeling very financially stressed and strained and government felt well you know I don't know what but just like things were were chaotic that maybe voters would pull back on saying yes to to tax measures, but they've been consistently saying yes to to funding services in their community that they value. And so as we sort of think about what this election was about, it's, of course, we'll pay attention to the governor's race and legislative races, but, you know, pay attention to the local stuff too. Uh, And it's another pretty good cycle of of local funding measures across Oregon. I don't know if this one ever got on your radar, the Josephine County seasonal retail activities tax. Yeah, they keep uh, under the police down again down 82 there. to 17, <laughs> yeah. which I felt like was just, I don't I, I don't know all the circumstances about how it got on the ballot and all that stuff, but that just seems like a gigantic no from Josephine County being like, yeah, sales taxes. We don't like <laughs> them. <laughs> well, John, thank you again for taking the time to come on the pod. I always enjoy these conversations. You bet. Um, anything you want to plug before we uh, head off? No, I want to just say congratulations to you. Um, looking Thanks. forward to your service in the state. Um, so good luck. We watch I appreciate you. it. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, we'll see you back here next week.